So in the uh, Washington Post last week, probably many of you saw that picture of that incredible oak tree that got destroyed in the storm. How many of you saw that picture? Yeah, good number. When you see something like that, it's so easy. Again, it's this direct contact with a sense of loss, of change and loss. And there was a lot of grieving. And it, and it reminded me of um, something I had read. And I want to read this to you. And this will be kind of the center theme of tonight's uh, talk. This is uh, D. H. Lawrence. And this is from Lady Chatterley's Lover. And D.H. Lawrence begins by saying that we have little needs and we have deeper needs. We have fallen into the mistake of living from our little needs till we have almost lost our deeper needs in a sort of madness. Let us prepare now for the death of our present little life and the reemergence in a bigger life in touch with the moving cosmos. It is a question, practically, of relationship. We must get back into relation, vivid and nourishing relationship to the cosmos and the universe. The way is through daily ritual and reawakening. We must once more practice the ritual of dawn and noon and sunset, the ritual of kindling fire and pouring water, the ritual of the first breath and the last, To these rituals we must return, or we must evolve them to suit our needs. For the truth is, we are perishing for lack of fulfillment of our greater needs. We are perishing for lack of fulfillment of our greater needs. We are cut off from the great sources of our inward nourishment and renewal, sources which flow eternally in the universe. Vitally, the human race is dying. It is like a great uprooted tree with its roots in the air. We must plant ourselves again in the universe. So when we forget what really matters, when we don't respond to our deepest needs, when we forget the presence and the love that really is what we are and nourishes our soul, when we forget the creativity and the aliveness that matters, we're uprooted. And that's it. That is what suffering is. It's a disconnection from the deepest essence of what we are. We're uprooted. And I think that image of that tree uprooted with with its limbs in the air. So what I'd like to do tonight is talk about how we get uprooted And really, what does it mean to plant ourselves back in the universe? Okay? And again, the signs of uprootedness, we know it. You know, I could say to you, you know, how do you know when you're uprooted, when you're disconnected? And most of us would say, well, when I get speedy or anxious or depressed, or when I start obsessively thinking or fixating or judging, And we have an uprooted culture, as we know. I speak often about the, um, you know, in the Chinese script that the word speed or busyness and heart-killing are very similar, the symbols. 
And our, our culture, and that's uprooted, we're not rooted in our hearts, and our culture is very speedy. We move too fast, we're too busy to be rooted or planted in our hearts. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, it's very much culture-wide. Uh, we consume too much. We're too busy consuming to be planted in the moment. We're too busy kind of leaning forward and trying to take in. We're too busy trying to control and manage to be planted in the moment, planted in our hearts. We can see in our individual lives how that uprootedness happens. You know, in in an existential way there is a, a conditioning of all organisms to feel somewhat separate, like in some way we're not a part of things. That's part of incarnating, is that there's like a membrane around us that says, this is me and the rest of the world's out there. So it's partly an existential predicament, this kind of sense of... And the, in, in Pali the word's dukkha, which means su- suffering, but it actually kind of means a, a sense of off-balance or uneasy or, or not quite right, because there's this sense of in some way cut off from what matters. So we're, we incarnate and have some sense of separate, not okay, something's off. But it gets very exacerbated by our culture and then it gets played through our families. And so that if we begin to examine our own biographies, we begin to shine a light on how it is that we can individually feel uprooted, like we're not connected or at home in what we are. There's a um, way in which every one of us got some set of messages about kind of the equation for for you to be approved and loved you need to be like then fill in the blanks every one of us and it's the culture's equation and then it gets kind of shaped through our parents that in some way you need to be special and you need to prove yourself a certain way and look a certain way and behave a certain way and then what happens is that we don't match that criteria because we're normal humans that are just real as we are. And, and then there's some sense of falling short. There's some sense of not being what we're supposed to be. And most everyone I know, not all the time, but hits many rounds of getting kind of sunk in this trance, as I call it, of how I am is not okay. Most everyone I know. So we're not rooted in our own aliveness. There's some sense of being uprooted or divided from our own being. A story I've shared with some of you that, that really touched me of a, uh, a boy in a restaurant with his family. Um, some of you, I hope, remember this one because it's, so, it's an important story. And, you know, his parents make their order and then he says, I'll have French fries, hot dog and a Coke. And um, his father said, oh, no, you won't. No, no, you're having meatloaf and milk and carrots. And um, the waitress looked at the little boy and said, so, hon, what do you want on that hot dog? You know? And, and everybody was kind of 
frozen. She left and, and the boy looked at his uh, parents and said, you know, she thinks I'm real. So that feels important because if our parents and our culture don't mirror back and see the, the awakeness and spontaneity and tenderness and passion and aliveness that we are, if we don't get mirrored back, then we come to a sense that the, what, the what's here is not okay. And then we have to contrive ourselves and shape ourselves to try to match what might be expected. And if we're honest and we watch ourselves in the world interacting, most times in some way we're trying to put forth a self that will be accepted, appreciated, respected, liked and so on. So rather than living rooted and having the spontaneity and wildness and aliveness just flow through, the universe flow through, because the universe can't flow through unless we're rooted in our being, we're uprooted some. We don't have access to our natural wisdom, intuition, humor, playfulness. We're uprooted. So we have a lot of different ways, each of us have different strategies of sensing, okay, something's not okay in here, how am I going to fix myself and shape myself and present myself to a world so it's okay? We all have our different strategies. And for many of us we spend a lot of time proving our worth, being trying to be productive, trying to achieve a lot, trying to get recognition. I mean, we all, we, that's very in the culture. And we also react to that not okay feeling by trying to dull the, um, the pain of it with over-consuming. You know, we, we're trying to fix ourselves a lot. It's interesting to just watch your life and have a sense, is there some attitude that you're really on this projectile towards better personhood and you're working hard to fix things that are wrong? How many of you have... No, I won't do a hand raise. <laughs> I do. You know, I was, uh, last Saturday I taught in Philadelphia and um, it's wonderful, by the way, they've got a lot of energy towards meditation, a lot of groups getting together and a lot of practice, very inspiring. So one woman I was meeting with at a break and she described an eating disorder that she's had probably for three to four decades, as far as she's known. And she said that only recently did she realize how she was chronically living inside a story of this is an addicted person, a bad person, a person that has to fix her problem and has to both change her behaviors and change her body. But that that story was almost like a 24-7, like that was the container for her living experience, living inside that story. And so I asked her, well, when you're inside that story, you know, go ahead and just sit here and play the story, you know, run it in your mind. What's it like? I mean, what's it really like if you play the story and then sense what's going on in your body and your heart when that story is there? And what she said was, I'm totally separate from everyone else. 
they're totally separate. I, that story cannot be running and have simultaneously a sense of, of real connection. I'm separate. She said, I'm afraid something around the corner is going to go wrong. So I'm tensing against that. And then she just stayed with it and she said, I feel like I'm losing my entire life. Like I have lost my life to a story. And then she started to weep. So what happens to us is that because of the culture and our families and so on, we leave ourselves. And we leave ourselves by overeating or over-drinking and we leave ourselves by judging ourselves or by judging others or by chronically trying to achieve or whatever it is. And then because we've left ourselves we can't feel good from it. We only get temporary hits of it feeling good. There's no way to feel good other than planting ourselves in this moment, this heart, this being. Any motion to try to fix our prove, our cover, never feels good. So we all have strategies and sadly the strategies actually take us away from ourselves even more. And the undercurrent is that something's wrong, we've got to fix it and we're really afraid of mistakes. We have a lot of anxiety about how imperfect we experience ourselves to be. And anything that's more information about us being imperfect, like this woman, it just feeds that story. It just feeds the story. So an example of anxiety about imperfection, actually a response to it. A reporter asked a bank president known in the business world as, he says, sir, what's the secret of your success? And the response was two words. Okay, what? right decisions. And how do you make the right decisions? One word. And sir, what is that? Experience. And how do you get experience? Two words. And sir, what are they? Wrong decisions. (laughs) And so we, on some level, intellectually know that we're all learning and that anything, you know, it's, I remember when I started training in neuro-linguistic programming, there was a little motto, it's, you know, never failure, always feedback, and, and we all know that. And yet, it's very deep in our body to be monitoring everything with some sense of, well, how am I doing now? And I invite you to check it out to sense how many moments is there some evaluation going of how you're doing. And it absolutely seeps into spiritual life that we have spiritual ideals of how the meditation is supposed to go. I remember one uh, student from the um, deepening practice class saying his biggest realization was that in every meditation he had some idea of how it was supposed to be and it was never quite the way it was supposed to be. You know, those church bulletins that you see outside the church as you drive by? On one it said, Sermon this morning, Jesus walks on the water. Sermon tonight, searching for Jesus. (laughs) So we have this ideal of how we're supposed to be and it's very painful to feel like we're, fall, we're falling below it. 
And we really want to get... We all have a lot of incessant thoughts that create unpleasantness going on. And actually, meditation helps us wake us up from that and helps us not to believe in those thoughts so much. But rather than training a meditation, for many people, there's other ways to try to get away from those incessant thoughts. And that's called TV or internet or recreation or again, using drugs or drinking, and other um, video games for the younger, not younger, all generations. <laughs> um, I just remember seeing this uh, little picture of a, a man and a woman in the living room, and he's saying to her, you know, if I ever, you know, get old and vegetative, please uh, pull the plug. And uh, she goes over the TV set and pulls the plug, you know. So... So we have different strategies to try to get outside of our, our habitual thoughts that basically are evaluating how we're doing all the time, or a lot of the time. And if we're not evaluating ourselves, we're evaluating the people we live with and the people we work with. But we're always doing this judging and having these standards. Um, the Buddha said, people that are always... Um, always having opinions on everything, just go around bothering each other, you know, which I think is a really good description. But we also have wholesome rituals to help wake us up out of this incessant thinking. And um, for some people it's to work in their garden, and for others it's to really listen to the rain, or to to listen to really beautiful music, And for some it's to walk in nature. For some it's to hug or be hugged or get a massage or give a massage or make love. But it wakes us up out of this this, um, constant movie and incessant kind of um, judging and comparing. So D.H. Lawrence says we must once again practice these rituals or design our own. And so let's explore how our meditation, you can become a kind of a living ritual so that we can learn to again root ourselves, so that we can again find a way to plant ourselves in the universe. And the beginning of the ritual of meditation, and, and I'm talking somewhat about formal meditation but also informal, of really waking up out of this kind of uprooted and busy-minded kind of um, trance we get into. The beginning, as I often speak of, is to learn to pause, to really slow down and to pause. Um, There's no way I know to decondition our conditioning to always be leaning forward. Do you know what I mean by that? That sense we're on our way to the next thing. And how often is it that there's that sense of what's right here is absolutely enough. That this moment, right now, and I mean right this moment, is as sacred and important as any moment in our lives, including the moment of our birth, our death, or our child's birth. Because if we have the habit of postponing um, what our, our notion of a special moment, of thinking at some other time, that habit is really potent. And it's going to be very rare that we... We're always going to be skimming the surface on our way somewhere. 
So pausing, and I call it the sacred art of pausing, is this kind of where we intuit, okay, it's here, and I need intentionally to pause and drop in. That what I long for, what I'm chasing after, it's not going to be experienced if I keep leaning forward, thinking more, figuring out, planning. At the um, spring retreat that IMCW had it in, in the Shenandoah, one woman shared in the closing circle, she's a bird watcher, and she had gone um, out for a walk, and she heard the sound of her favorite bird, which is, I think, a yellow-breasted cheat one of her favorite birds. And she was, and she was looking around trying to find it because it was just enticingly close and really loud. And, and, and she kept walking over here and walking over there. And, you know, she was, she was really excited. And then finally she said, oh yeah, pause, become still. So that's what she did. She sat down and she got very still. And that yellow-breasted cheat flew to a bush right near her. She got really, really still, several feet away. And she said she had never been so close or so intimate or so blessed. And what had she done? She stopped doing. She stopped that, that leaning forward, that being on her way somewhere to, to get to that cheat. And, and that's really for everything we cherish in our lives, whether it's um, feeling in love, or whether it's really enjoying beauty, or whether it's f- having creative energies flow through us, whether it's having a capacity to serve others, its origin is this, this ability to stop and become still and replant ourselves in the moment. Now the challenge, as you know, is that these minds are very, very busy. So we pause, and it may be that when we pause there's a lot of stuff going on. And, it's, and then the, the intention is just to notice it, because the thoughts aren't the problem. It's just that we keep chasing after them. And just to have the simple intention to keep asking that question, well, what's really happening here? What's really happening here? Now what most drags us away from planting ourselves in the moment is that the moment starts feeling uncomfortable for s- some reason. There's physical pain or there's some emotional difficulty and we spin off into what we need to do about it. That's the single biggest reason that we don't plant ourselves and just stay here is that we keep on spinning off and how to fix the moment to make it more to our liking. So there's a um, understanding here that, that really we're learning to allow the moment as it is. And one of the trainings, I call it the training of the two arrows, that the first arrow is when we arrive in the moment and there's some discomfort. So maybe right now you're sitting and if you close your eyes and check in and sense, well, what's this moment like? You know, and you just, your intention is to really pause and, and discover, you know, really plant yourself in this moment. And yet as you 
you begin to pay attention, really pay attention to the sensations and the feelings in your body, maybe there's some discomfort somewhere. Maybe it's a uh, physical discomfort. Or maybe if you feel your heart, there's some kind of torque of anxiety. So that's the first arrow, is that, that it doesn't feel exactly how we want it to. The second arrow that the Buddha described is that we then make ourselves wrong. We then react. We have an attitude about it. Oh, this is not good. This means something's wrong. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with someone else. The second arrow is basically a judgment saying, this isn't okay. So our practice is to begin to notice that so that as you pause and say, okay, I'm going to plant myself in this moment and you notice maybe something uncomfortable, some tendency to want to think about something or figure it out or get away from a physical discomfort and then you sense the second arrow like, oh, I shouldn't be doing that and something's wrong with me. Or maybe you get lost in the reactivity. A friend of mine, uh, a teacher from Connecticut, uh, described going to Asia some years ago. And uh, she and a number of other Westerners were practicing in the same monastery. And she was really appalled at how they were being rude Westerners. They were embarrassing her, her friends. I mean, they were really loud and impolite and they didn't know some of the forms and the protocol and um, they didn't bow to some of the senior monks and she was just outraged. So she went to her teacher and she tried to point out how the Westerners' disrespect was really disrupting the entire atmosphere of the monastery. And at first her teacher kind of ignored the fact that she was so upset. And this only made her assert more adamantly that her friends needed to be set straight. Finally, in a kindly voice, her teacher said this. He said, Buddha's mind is angry today. Buddha's mind is angry today. And it stopped her in her tracks. The world shifted. Because there was the anger, and it was loud, and it was fierce, and it was strong. That's the first arrow. But it wasn't like he was saying, you're angry, or you're bad for being angry, or you should even get rid of the anger. He just said, he was just, it was mindfulness. Buddha's mind is angry today. It's like, like it's a rainy day today. There was just some thunder that rolled through without a trace of the second arrow. Does that make it clear, the difference? That stuff's going to arise. We're going to have different weather systems. We're going to pause, and there's going to be experiences that are comfortable or uncomfortable and we might even have a reaction to them but the second arrow the, re- the arrow that really nails us in suffering is we make ourselves wrong it's my anger and I'm bad and unspiritual for it or it's my eating disorder and I am an addicted person and I'm you know, screwing up things you know, it's the eyeing and myeing so Zen Master Ryokan, you know, he describes how these different weather systems come through and really our practice in planting ourselves right in the moment, he describes it this way. He says, to find the Buddhist law, drift east and west, come and go, entrusting yourself to the waves. 
So you might take a moment, just sense what does it mean for you to plant yourself in the moment and to truly entrust yourself to the waves, to not add the second arrow of, well, this particular set of waves couldn't be what Ryokan was talking about, but really entrust yourself to whatever experience arises right now. Let your senses be awake, Entrusting maybe starts with a little relaxing into the moment. Give yourself that gift of letting go through your shoulders, maybe softening your hands. We plant ourselves in the moment by sensing what's happening, these sounds, these physical sensations. This particular mood or emotion. Maybe Buddha's mind is quiet right now, or busy, sad, or anxious. What happens if you really entrust yourself to the waves? in the moment when we stop controlling and really let this life happen, that sense of separate self begins to dissolve and we can feel our belonging to the universe. Let this life live through us. Now the sense of planting ourselves in the universe One level is to really say, what's happening inside me right now? Another gateway is to say, what is aware of this experience? What is aware of this experience? Not to respond with another thought or idea, but just to turn towards presence itself. It's sometimes described as a space between thoughts, just to become that space between thoughts. If we can begin to wake up from thoughts and just sense the presence that's here, we discover another expression of planting ourselves in the universe, in the space, the wakeful space that's here. Now I'll read you a description of this a bit. 
it's described that we're, it's like we're usually in this movie theater, completely lost in a variety of shows, romances, adventure films and nature films, comedies and tragedies, usually starring ourselves. So this is our normal waking trance, okay? We're in a movie theater and we're usually the protagonist. And then we hear the instruction, which is just what we're talking about right now, to look to the source of the movies on the screen. Okay, so like the woman I described who's always living in this story of I'm an addicted self trying to fix myself. Look to the source of that movie. Who's aware of that movie? Who's creating that movie? So we turn our heads for the first time and we recognize that all the movie images arise from a light source and a series of changing images projected by the light onto the screen. The light itself clear and shining, is colored by the various forms on the film, yet its essential nature is pure and unchanging. So yes, we get fixated on the stories, but what's creating those stories is this pure, unchanging light. Now at some moments, when you're in this movie theater, there's gaps in the action. The show gets a bit slow, even boring. Or maybe you pause a little. Maybe you notice that we shift in our seats and notice the people eating popcorn around us and we remember we're in a movie. That sometimes happens to us in this waking trance. We sometimes get it that we've been living in these stories and we kind of look around and things shift a little bit. In the same way we can notice there are gaps between our thoughts, gaps in the whole sense of ourself. Instead of being lost in ideas and the problems in front of us, creating a whole sense of ourself, There are moments when we step back, let go, and sense the space around our experience. The space between thoughts, the gaps where we let go and are not identified with our thoughts and feelings and stories arise all the time. These gaps, says meditation master Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, are extremely good news They remind us that we can always rest in awareness that freedom is always possible. So this is the second gateway I want to bring in tonight to what it means to really plant ourselves in the universe, which is to wake up out of the trance of stories and sense the gap between the stories. And again, just to invite you, just to close your eyes maybe, and let your senses be awake so you're aware of sounds sensations and just with some curiosity notice what it might mean to rest in the gaps between thoughts to just kind of surrender into the experiencing that's not framed by any thought. Let go into it.
to plant ourselves in the universe is to surrender into this mystery that is outside of and transcended to any thought form to be that mystery. And just take a few full breaths and come on back. And we'll just explore a little together the third gateway of planting ourselves in the universe. So the first is this moment-to-moment attention. It's just noticing what's happening, this vividness of sound and sensation really come here embodied. The second is to really sense the presence that shines through between the thoughts, the presence itself. The third is to sense the experience of relatedness when we start getting quiet and feel the who we are together. It's the relatedness we feel when we sense our child or our parent or our friend and sense beyond our ideas of the person just that open-hearted connection. And this is the third gateway, that when we can touch that sense of connection, of tenderness, that's, that's outside of any ideas, it's just an open-heartedness, we have replanted ourselves in the vast space of heart that is this universe. The connection's already there. It's our thinking and judging and all our rituals of avoidance that take us away from feeling that sense of here we are together. When we're not afraid, we're in love but we spend a lot of time preoccupied and afraid. I um, heard a really interesting story some months ago about um, a kind of falling in love story and this was a woman who was doing, you know how there's tons and tons of organizations that do genetic tracing? It's like tons of them now. And so she got really fascinated in finding out who her ancestors were. And her name was V. Higginson and she's an urban African-American woman who lives in Harlem, just incredibly charismatic woman. She directs a choir and, and just one of kind of the inspirations of her community. So she, Vi, decided she wanted to find out who her ancestors were. So she goes, she locates a cousin and his name's Marion West. And it turns out this cousin of hers is a white cattle rancher from Missouri. <laughs> He's this huge older Southern guy. And so Vi, uh, has located her cousin, it turns out that uh, Marion is actually doing the same tracing. And he's told that he, had, that he had blue blood British royalty in his ancestry. That's why he started doing the tracing. So Vi and um, Marion discover that they're both there and they find each other, so he invites her down. And um, so this, by the way, was on 60 Minutes and it was, um, it was just a tearjerker. So he invites her down and they, these two just, they come together and they embrace and they're tears and he's saying, God put us together, God put us together. And then he visits her and you see this scene of his, he's in this gathering and she's doing her gospel choir and he's having the time of his life singing with the gospel choir. And... I think, and so I was watching this and trying to sense, so so what is it about this? They went on to describe how eight generations back translates to 
you're eight generations back, if you just think about it, gives you 256 great-grandparents. And then 20 generations back gives you millions of great-grandparents. And that we're from millions of great-grandparents and hundreds of millions of great-greats and that we're from the earth and the stars and that awareness is living through us and that these body-minds are more connected than we can possibly imagine. And there's something about whether we find it out, our connection through genetic tracing, or we get it because we know we share almost the same genes anyway with most species, even fruit flies, we begin as we quiet down to intuit that life wants to live. And you can feel that, that life wants to live. And you can feel, as we look at our fellow humans, that everybody wants to be happy and nobody wants to suffer. And you can sense when you look close that that each one of us, if we saw a little child that had just lost their parents, as as, um, Kin's been describing, there's not one of us here that wouldn't in some deep way want to bring some love and happiness to that being's life. Not one of us. We are alike in those ways. And we have tons of wonderful differences, wonderful, fabulous, infinite expressions of this universe. And yet this one aliveness and one awareness that lives through us. And if we can slow down, if we can pause, this third gateway of planting ourselves in the heart of the universe is the one of looking and seeing in each other that the same sacred awareness is looking back through those eyes as is looking through our eyes. And the same heart that wants to love and be loved as ours is resonating in the field. This is uh, Rumi. The songs we sing are like the foam on the surface of the sea of being, while the precious gems lie deep beneath. But the tenderness in our songs is a reflection of what is hidden in the depths. The songs we sing are like the foam on the surface of the sea of being, while the precious gems lie deep beneath. But the tenderness in our songs is a reflection of what is hidden in the depths. Stop the flow of your words. Open the window of your heart and let the Spirit speak. So I began tonight by describing that uprooted tree and that it's our conditioning that you can sense this in all the traditions describe some sense of separation, that we're kind of incarnated with that and we have the capacity to recognize that and wake up to a sense of belonging. We have the capacity, each of us, it's part of our evolution to replant ourselves in the universe. And when we do, we have these three gateways, they're archetypal. One of them is to come into the moment, what's right here? The other is to sense the actual presence between the thoughts themselves. And the third, that tenderness, when we sense the the belonging with each other. When we begin to practice in this way, when we replant ourselves in the universe, what we're replanting ourselves in is our own vast 
awakened heart and mind. Any of those gateways takes us home to what we are. It's not a universe out there. We're tapping into the very mystery of what we are. And in the moments of tapping in, the whole universe of wisdom, creativity, and love flows through us. The sad thing is that we are chasing after something and we're looking in the wrong places. We're speeding along, we're fixated, we're trying to prove, we're trying to avoid, and the gem is right here in the moments that we pause and we replant ourselves in presence. So I'd like to invite you just to close in that spirit tonight In a simple way, just feel your intention to arrive here, to belong to this moment. To rest in the presence, the awakeness that's really your essence. And know as you get up to leave and move into the evening and the morrow that the attitude that really will help you to remember is a kind of sincerity and tenderness that you can't force yourself to replant in the moment. There's a kind of gentleness. Again, the words of Rumi. The songs we sing are like the foam on the surface of the sea of being, while the precious gems lie deep beneath. But the tenderness in our songs is a reflection of what is hidden in the depths. Stop the flow of your words, open the window of your heart, and let the Spirit speak. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.